Okay. Um, yeah. That sounds Sorry. great. I, I guess I should begin by thanking Chibu for the invitation to uh, speak on something other than Isaiah, um, or, or Isaiah, as others put it. I that's my specialty, uh, and that's a 66 chapter book. So to get to speak on a uh, shorter book here through chapter 10, you know, it's uh, it's nice. Um, but I. Um, I guess what my plan is, you you all will be doing the hard work of preaching and working through the nitty gritty. And, um, you know, I, I am more and more cognizant that my role as a scholar, um, you know, scholars can have them impression that that you know what should be said in the church but but i i find myself at a position where i need to relearn you know to really learn uh, the grammar of the church and the life of faith and living this word out in community which you all are doing so that this is a great opportunity for me to be blessed uh, through this conversation um what i thought i'd do is um I have my Bible open in front of me. Uh, you, you all can open yours too, um, to Ezra. And um, I have a like a Word document just with a couple things in it. One is the map, just to show us visually a map of where we're at geographically when we're thinking about the book of Ezra, a little bit about its historical context. But then um, I... Shibu sent a little bit of a um, preaching outline to me, and and I've I've tweaked that a little bit, I guess, um, in terms of how I might see the flow of the text. I thought we could just kind of walk through um, what the major blocks of text would be in terms of what I might be thinking about preaching from if I was doing a series on this, hmm. and we can That's just right. kind of talk through section by section. So. Um, this has given me good practice to figure out how to share screens because soon I'm going to be doing a lot of dual modality teaching. Where I'll have our plan at Wheaton is that we'll have students in the classroom, but because we have to keep social distancing, only about a third of my students will be in class. The rest will be virtual, and so I'll be doing Zoom in class, all of this at the same time. So wow. I'm going to share a screen here yeah. and see if. Uh, I can get this up, and it's looking like it's going to work here. I, I, are you all seeing this uh, the screen yep. in front yep. of you? Yep. Wow, this this is great. So when we think about um, Ezra, obviously we're we're thinking about um, a time of, of what's referred to as a post-exilic era, and that just is referring to a time of post-exile. They they've been in exile. And if I'm, let's see if we have a, um, can you see my mouse moving on the screen here? Yeah. Yeah. So if we think about where Judah and Israel uh, were, we think back to around 722 BC, the northern part of Israel got taken into exile into Assyria, which is this region. Mm -hmm. Then Babylon begins to grow and takes over Assyria, and then eventually takes over this region and brings Judah 
into exile. That exile took place around 586 BC, and you've been talking about that a great deal, I'm sure, with your Lamentations study. Um, but now we're at a point at the start of Ezra where there's a new empire that has risen, and you'll see here in kind of the southeast portion of the map, Perseus. And this map you see here is colored according to region within the Persian Empire at this time. So this is a massive empire. If you see the pink, how it spreads just all the way across um, into um, kind of Asia, then we have it it's spreading all the way up into what we now know as kind of Turkey. And of course, it includes um, Israel and um, parts of Africa. So this is a huge, huge empire at the time. And so sometimes when we're reading Ezra, I think just a spatial awareness of how small Judah would be um, amidst this huge empire. Sometimes we uh -huh. think, oh, of course, this was at the center of um, center of things. But, you know, really, it's a pretty small part of um, this larger um, Persian empire. Yeah. Um, I also have, uh, and that, then I'm going to pause just for a second, a little general timeline of um, what we have going on in Ezra, where in 539, that's where the book opens, Cyrus issues a decree telling exiles they can return. One thing that's kind of cool, like if, if I don't know if in your um, sermons or whatever it's useful, there we found some, not, not me personally, but there's been a Cyrus cylinder found, which, which is a really famous find where you have Cyrus having written out a decree allowing um, a people group to return back to their home lands to rebuild a temple. So this seems to be the practice of Persian empire uh, of like, hey, let's let people go back home and return. Let's let them develop a sense of kind of their own, recover a sense of their own cultural and religious identities back at home. And they're kind of undoing a bit of what happened during the time of um, Babylon and Assyria. So once they get back within a year, they're gathering materials, building a temple, and then you have this period from 538 to 520 where they're facing a lot of uh, temple resistance, resistance to them building the temple and you get, a, you get a break in action. But then in 520, which we see kind of um, Haggai and Zerubbabel and uh, Zechariah actually um, pop up onto the screen and you see them in chat, start of the chapter five kind of spurring the people on to begin uh, rebuilding um, temples. So I'm just going to change this um, here. Temple is eventually rebuilt and they celebrate Passover. But uh, the reason this timeline is significant is it's not until 458 that Ezra actually becomes a character in the book called by his name. Um, Ezra... Um, is obviously a priest, and what you see that happens in chapter 7, all of a sudden he starts speaking in the first person. You know, he'll refer to himself as I and my and so forth. So 
when we think about what Ezra did, Ezra actually isn't the one who first came back and was leading the band. What you see is kind of two parts to the book. One is kind of the pre-Ezra time period in chapters one to six, and then in chapters seven to 10, you get um, the Ezra kind of focus on reform. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll unpack a bit more of the shape of the book, but I, I, I'll just mention in part that one thing that's interesting when you look at how the book is structured between these two halves, chapters one to six and chapter seven to 10, the first six chapters are especially focused on kind of the community coming back and them re recovering their identity as a people who are centered around the temple. And now Ezra comes in and he's continuing that focus on the temple, but now he's bringing the new element of a people kind of being reformed by the law of the Lord. So I, there's kind of a major temple focus in the first six chapters and then chapter seven to 10, more of a focus on, um, on kind of the, the role of the law and bringing reform to that community. So um, maybe I'll pause here. Thoughts, comments, questions on this kind of historical time frame. Andy, how does, um, you mentioned there Haggai and Zechariah spur on the temple building and stuff. How does that interact with Zerubbabel's work and kind of, I mean, does he sort of get the temple started and then there's opposition and it stalls and then Haggai and Zechariah have a role in sort of kickstarting it again? Is that the way it plays out? Yeah, you know, I, the, the way I look at it, that's a great question. I, I changed it to Haggai and Zechariah, but I could keep Haggai, Zechariah, and Zerubbabel all in there. Um, the, the difference is like Zerubbabel was more of like a governor sort of figure. Um, you see him mentioned a number of times in the book of Haggai, um, being referred to as the governor uh, at the time. Um, so he, he seems to be kind of bringing some sort of more political leadership, social leadership at the time, of course, under the Persian Empire. Um, and what we find with Haggai and Zechariah, they're more playing the role of, of prophets, kind of calling out to the people, speaking the word of God to them, spurring them on kind of with the prophetic word to, to rebuild. Um, and I would just note, you, you know, it's important to realize that they've returned back to the land, yes, but, but this return back to the land wasn't really... Um, all that maybe they would have hoped for, right? They, they don't have their own Davidic king. Mm. They're still under the Persian empire. The temple they built, uh, as you see in Nezra, is kind of shabby. They're, they're, they're weeping as they compare it in their memories back to the time of Solomon's temple. So, um, um, yeah, so, so, these, so Zerubbabel is, is a bit of a leader figure, but, but not quite a king like they might have hoped for in a Davidic, from the Davidic line. And Andy, this is all parallel with Nehemiah and the wall. Yeah, it's sort of yeah. all at the same time. So, so where, where Nehemiah comes in, he, he comes in about 15 years after Ezra. So like, um, so Nehemiah um, kind of is in Susa, which you'll see in the map here. Um, oh, yep. I'll go up. 
and he kind of hears about what's happening here and he's distraught about the city and the walls. So um, in Jewish tradition, Ezra and Nehemiah are read very closely together. Some people refer to this as the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, like with a um, yeah, yeah. dash between those names. Um, and I think that they are distinct books in, in some respect in that Nehemiah starts with Nehemiah speaking. Um, but on the other hand, Ezra is a big figure in the book of Nehemiah. That, that's where his, if you want to look at a major time of reform under the word of God, you know, you, you look in Nehemiah where Ezra stands up and uh, speaks from a platform, God's word, and people are standing to hear it and are weeping. And um, you have people in their midst translating it, interpreting it for the people. So um, so that's happening. Ezra, so Ezra's reform is happening throughout the time of Nehemiah. But what Nehemiah comes in and says is, hey, okay, maybe we've got the temple rebuilt, but what about the whole city itself? Let, let's rebuild these walls. Um, so that, that's, I think in 445 BC is when he returns, if I'm recalling that correctly. Great, thanks. Yep. That's great. Yep. I think I'm always confronted by how the timing, the how long. Yeah. yeah. Like when you read the chapters, you kind of think, oh, yeah, but then seeing this visually, okay, this is how many, how much time took pass between all these things happening is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, yeah. you move on in a week to the next chapter, but it took them 10 years, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, imagine, uh, imagine that, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and imagine an 18-year time gap for, for not building the temple. I mean, imagine the amount of um, persecution, um, resistance they're fa experiencing um, in these efforts that they've just kind of given up, that they've set it to the side. Um, yeah. Mm. So. All right. Well, why don't I uh, move on to the shape of the book and, and we'll get to kind of work through these texts. Um, but as we look here at kind of part one of the book, which is kind of rebuilding around God's presence, uh, I think similar to how uh, Chabu had it div divided, uh, the first two chapters, I think, work really well together as a unit, like you already had it. Um, which we see a return from Excel. But, but the one piece I would just add um, here is, is what their focus is on when they're returning from exile. And I think a strong case uh, can be made that the focus in these chapters is really about a return from exile with a zeal for God's house. Um, I, I think that this focus on God's house is, is clear. And one thing... Uh, that's good to do whenever you read a biblical book is to ask, well, what are the opening verses that, that have been chosen to start this book? And um, so as we look at these, it, it says in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah. So, so there's a kind of focus early on here on whatever is about to be spelled out, this is fulfilling God's word that he had promised through Jeremiah. Mm. And the promise that's likely in mind there is the promise where Jeremiah said, hey, after 70 years, you'll come back to the to Jerusalem. 
and then it says the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation through his entire kingdom and to put in writing. So you see the Lord fulfilling his word and in doing so he's stirring the heart of a pagan king who's king of an empire as big as we just saw on that map <laughs> to do something for that little nation that, that happens to be God's very chosen people. And as we read what his decree is, it, it's striking. It says, uh, Yahweh, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, which you see across the earth. It, it really seems true. He's been given granted all these kingdoms of the earth and he's appointed me to build him this god of all the heavens a house at jerusalem and judah so here from the very start there there's this focus that the reason king cyrus has been stirred up isn't so much to say hey you all can go home now it's actually the the focus is hey i've been appointed to help build a house of the Lord. And as an implication of that, well, any of you of his people, may his God be with him, may he go to Jerusalem and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. So this kind of return from exile that Cyrus is allowing is tied very closely with their task of building um, the house um, of the Lord. And it goes on in verse four to say, well, let every survivor wherever he resides be assisted by men of the region with silver, gold, goods, etc., to give a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. So this, this kind of calls to mind um, the Exodus a little bit. Remember when uh, Israel was led out of Egypt and all the Egyptians gave them goods to be used. And, and what were those later used for? to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, right? Mm. So here you, you see again, like God doing this kind of work of a second exodus, if you will, that centered around them being able to, to go back. So, um, so it's just remarkable what we see here. And so I guess, um, and I won't go through all of chapter uh, one and two, but, but I'll just note a couple of things. Um, the first is, um, that God is fulfilling his plans by stirring up hearts. I think that's significant here. That, that seems really unique when you compare it to the rest of what you see in the Bible. You don't see expressions like this all that often. He's stirred up the heart. Uh, we see in verse 1 of King Cyrus. Um, but what's striking is that in verse 5, when it talks about those who come back, the, the family heads of Judah and Jerusalem, Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had roused. So God seems to not only be stirring up Cyrus, but he's actually stirring up a people and preparing them to go and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. So you see God at work stirring hearts. And I think that that's something um, we could obviously count on today of him being at work stirring the hearts of, of the people. And that's a theme we see actually in, in the book of God just really acting in personal ways in people's lives in Ezra to kind of get them um, on board with them. The second um, theme we see in that first part is 
a focus on restoring God's house. We, we saw that in those opening verses where Cyrus um, says, hey, God's appointed me to build him a house. Um, whoever wants to go back and build this house, let him go. People are being stirred up in verse 5 to build this house of the Lord. We see um, as soon as they get back to the land in chapter 2, verse 68, after they arrived at the Lord's house in Jerusalem, etc., there's just a real focus on um, the Lord's house. And you see, um, even in the list of names, you know, they, these names are kind of boring <laughs> to some extent. And um, I, if you quizzed me over who Bonnie's descendants are and who Zachai's descendants are, I, I have no clue, but maybe some commentators. Oh, that's disappointed, Andy. I thought you'd know that. Well, but I, that's why you're the pastor, right? They can, uh, <laughs> all the, all the, all your people in church can ask you that. So. I'll share your email with them, so it's fine. <laughs> um, why I joined? But, yeah. <laughs> but one thing, one thing that is striking about this list of names is starting in chapter two, verse thirty-six. You see priests being included, then in chapter forty. I'm sorry, verse 40, the Levites are listed. Then you see uh, verse 41, uh, the singers are included. Andy, I don't know if there are bass guitarists included in this list, but, you know. Definitely was. Okay. Um, chapter, verse 43, the temple servants are included, um, etc. So, so there's this focus on, okay, as these people are going back and restoring God's house, of course, those people who play such a key role in God's house are, are receiving a key focus here in who's being listed. Then the final thing, kind of this return, I, I think there's an emphasis on God's people of all kinds being called to join in this mission. You know, you see um, people, uh, priests and Levites being stirred up. But in this list, you see people from Bethlehem, you see people from um, AI from Jericho, you, you see a, a whole range of uh, sorts of people listed here. Um, and, and you see this come out even more in the book of Nehemiah. You'll see the rebuilding of the city walls there, like even daughters are joining in the task of like protecting the walls and rebuilding each part. And, and I think there's a focus in this post-exilic era on really seeing how the entire community is part of what God is calling them um, to do. So, um, so the first two chapters, I, I, I would think a nice general call of, of a return uh, from exile with a zeal for God's house. And then I think that can get spelled out further in the subsequent chapters. But maybe I'll pause now. Um, any questions about what I've said, comments, thoughts on what I've said to about that first um, maybe preaching unit in chapters one to two. Andy, I was um, talking with my wife the other night and we were getting ourselves a bit confused um, with the return and like the list of people who return because yeah. like it refers to the Levites, but it doesn't really refer to any other tribes. And I just wasn't sure, like was the exile such kind of an obliteration of God's people that the tribes had kind of disappeared at this point. Um, and I wasn't quite sure who these people were that were coming back in terms of, are they, are they, 
it sounds stupid, but are they just Jewish people? Are they kind of people that have an identity with that land or are they still kind of associating with their tribes or how does that all work post-exile? That's a great, great question, Paul. Um, one thing that we need to realize is that whoever returned in this first return, it was a pretty small group of Israelites. A lot of the Jews chose to stay scattered in exile. They chose not to return. In terms of who returned, there, there's this um, phrase that, that I hear from time to time. It, it may even be wrapped up with Mormonism of these lost tribes of Israel, right? That, that when people came back from exile, there was really only, say, the Levites and people from Judah who came back. But now there's these other 11 tribes who are lost and we're regathering them. And I think even for the Mormons, they, they thought maybe the Native Americans in America were among these last tribes. I, I don't know if, uh, um, if the Aboriginal uh, community, people were viewed in similar ways, say by, by um, people in um, say the 1800s. But what, what the truth is, when you look at the text we have from the post-exilic era, there is a major focus in these lists on Levites and priests. But when you look at, um, say, the book of uh, Chronicles, which opens with a number of genealogies, it talks about people from Ephraim coming back. It lists people from um, a lot of, most of the tribes to give them a sense that, hey, this new people we are, are not simply Judahites. We're not simply priests. We, all of you are all Israel. And, and that comes out, especially in the books of First and Second Chronicles, um, which is post-exilic book. And so I just, I, I think in uh, First Chronicles 9, I think at the start there, you might see some um, uh, further uh, description about um, kind of who these people were who returned. Um, so, yeah, so it says the people from the descendants of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, some of them settled in Jerusalem. And so some are going back to their hometowns. And actually, I think there were people drawn kind of by lot. And I think that's discussed in Nehemiah about who gets to stay in Jerusalem and who gets to go back to their hometown and so forth. Because I don't think Jerusalem would have been that great of a city to be living in at the time. I mean, it, it, it's been destroyed and, um, you know, would you rather, would you choose to go live in a disaster area or go, go out to more of a rural area and start life um, there? So uh, does that help, Paul? Yeah. So it sounds like it's sort of a bit of a cross-section of the tribes are sort of coming back to that area yeah yeah and there does seem to be a focus on the levites and priests who are listed rightly because there's such a focus on restoring god's house um i've got a question uh, andy just about um the way cyrus speaks of god and um i know there's other examples um you know for example with daniel um and darius and King Nebuchadnezzar in a similar way when he, he refers to kind of the God of um, 
you, you know, he has an interaction with yeah. God. He speaks about God. Is there is there suggestion that he has? Um, is this just you know a way of referring to Jehovah God, or is this an indication of where his heart is at? Um, yeah, yeah. And the same with Pharaoh, right? With, yeah, with Joseph, yeah. it seems to be a recognition um, that there's God. You know, it, some people want to claim that Cyrus is a convert um, because of passages like this, but I'm a bit cautious um, uh, to make that claim because you don't get much else, really. You don't get much else, and uh, there are other things in the historical record which seem to point to him uh, being a typical Persian um, in terms of um, kind of wanting to affirm everybody's God and keep everyone happy. <laughs> um, but what, what's striking to me is if you read in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, it talks about God raising up somebody who hasn't known him and mentions Cyrus by name. And I think that the focus really is, especially in Isaiah and I think here, is about how God can use a pagan king to do the work that originally the Davidic kings did. This is what David wanted to do to build God a house. This is what Solomon did. He built God a house. Now without a Davidic king, God can sovereignly do something that he predicts in advance in Isaiah 44 to 45, mentioning Cyrus by name there. And um, so I would tend to focus on what God's able to do, how God's fulfilling his word through Isaiah speculate a little bit less on the the heart condition of of cyrus here mm. so. I, I, it, yeah so it, it really more speaks of that god can use his own people and he can use others regardless um of where they're at he's he's sovereign to command uh the yeah. actions of all yeah 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 and i'd be curious to see i mean in australia it's different but uh, one can even look and see times where leaders have been kind of stirred up by God to enable works of my God to be done mm. um, for the good of his people. Um, in uh, so anyways. It, That's good. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Maybe I'll move on now to uh, the, the second block, which I think differs a little bit from um what you had before. I think you had chapters three to four together. Yeah. I tend to see chapter four a bit more closely with five and six. So if anyone okay. is brave and wants to do all of Ezra four through six, <laughs> like, uh, I, I've kind of broken Ezra three up into its own. And then um, because what we see in chapter three, you don't see any um, kind of, um, resistance or oppression happening there that that kind of kicks in in chapter four and mm -hmm. kind of reaches its end in chapter six so so I tend yeah. to view chapter three as more of an outgrowth from chapters one to two where they've come back now with a zeal for God's house but I think in this sermon sermon you can get more specific on okay well what does it look like to prioritize God's house as they're coming back they're trying to reestablish who they are as the people of God, the 
very first thing they do in, in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, is they build an altar. And, and the altar is obviously the easiest thing to be built, right? It's not like building walls and so forth, but it, it almost seems like if we at least get the altar built, we can meet with God. We, we can worship God. And of course, this is a pattern throughout the whole Old Testament. Everywhere Abraham was going, he was building altars, meeting with God, worshiping God. And they were significantly focused on building this temple or building this altar. The, the, and this enables them here to then uh, celebrate God through, I have altar and sacrament here, but what I mean by sacrament is this is taking place in the seventh month, which is a month with tons of feasts. It's like the day of the atonement, the day the festival of booths and so forth happening at this time. And we're told in verse four that they celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed and offered burnt offerings. And the festival of booths was a chance for them to reconnect with their identity as a people who have been saved out of Egypt. They are the saved people of God who gather and meet with and worship their God who has saved and chosen them. And the people leading this rebuilding of the altar um, are uh, kind of the high priest here, uh, Joshua. Uh, we see um, Zerubbabel, and we see uh, kind of the, these chief leaders taking this task on. In verses 8 to 9, we skip ahead from the seventh month all the way up into the second month of the second year. And now there's a focus on, okay, the altar's been built. Now let's rebuild the foundation of the temple. Let's get that foundation squared away. Now, what strikes me here is that this is obviously a bigger task. And if the priests and the leaders especially want to remain focused on this, guiding the people to meet with God at the altar uh, in sacrament, um, they delegate this to uh, Levites and uh, they carry out this task of rebuilding kind of this, this temple foundation. And I note here a third priority, uh, first being meeting with God, second being um, continuing to build around that uh, a temple foundation. But third, there seems to be a priority on having thankfulness in the midst of that. The, the leaders kind of guide the people, and it says in verse uh, 11 that they sing praise and thanksgiving to God. For his love endures forever, and the people give this great shout. And so they're taking time. Has the temple been built now? No. But they have the altar. They have the temple foundation. Let's pause. Like, even though we're not all the way done with it, like, let's give thanks to God. Even though there may be lingering disappointment. Even though it may not be as great as it once was or what they maybe hoped it would be. Um, they take time here to give thanks. So, so I kind of see these as this is written in a way that's again prioritizing the altar, uh, temple foundation, as well as uh, kind of thank giving thanks uh, for what they've accomplished. So I'll pause here uh, before moving on. Again, questions, thoughts.
Shibu, I'm loving this. Um, you know, look at, you know, draw the parallel between a, a church that's been, you know, really, and been really happy with what they had and then had it taken all the way and then mm. you know, what, what do you want back first? Mm. You know, it's yeah. a real heart challenge, isn't it? Mm. Um, mm. And, and you, I mean, you just think about what, what churches are saying that they're missing. Mm. What do I want back first? And, mm. and, you know, what, you know, contemplate, what if we never have it back the same again? You know, mm. yes, there'll be sorrow and disappointment, mm. but, yeah. but what is, what was the number one priority anyway? Um, mm. and That's good. I, I, mm. I love this. I, this is, this is beautiful. This is, you know, this is God's time. Yeah. yeah, that that's that's so. Uh, yeah, that's just hitting me really hard. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good, Andy. I like the breakup on here as well. By the way, I'm going to be changing it on our coaching. So yeah, well, I'll, I'll email you this file when I'm done. If it, oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you. Um. Yeah, it is striking, isn't it? During these times, what a, look at what's been stripped away, and how mm. can you, as leaders, be prioritizing? Well, let's ensure people are able to meet with God. Mm. How do we continue to help guide people in worshiping God, praying to Him? Um, and you know, maybe it won't be able to be in a building like you had liked it to be mm. at. Mm. You know, or maybe things will look different. Um, but let's give thanks. Let's keep prioritizing this presence of God that we're called to gather around. Yeah. yeah. A quick question around um, the disappointment factor there. Um, I'd heard somewhere that it wasn't because of the memories of the first temple and the spirit of God kind of coming upon the temple and being such a significant moment that, that because God's spirit didn't evidently come upon this temple at any point in the, in Ezra, that that was part of the disappointment that it wasn't the same and it wasn't the same because God's spirit wasn't evidently present. Is that true or yeah. is that reading too much into it? Cause only the foundations were actually built here. Yeah. I, I think your, your point there at the end is, is good. Like when, when the glory of God fills the temple under Solomon, it's after the whole temple is built. I, I don't think this is still open air, if you will. <laughs> I, I don't think there would be an expectation, at least at this point, that the um, glory presence of God would have come down, right? Yeah. Um, but, but what we see here is these people are described as those who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. So it seems to be by mentioning who had seen the first temple that that's likely describing why these are the ones who were who were weeping. They they can tell it's not going to be as glorious as they thought. Um, it might in comparison. Um, so it's a weeping driven by comparison, um, because they 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 have a picture of what used to be, and now they see what's going to be, and they. The the implication is that that's driving their disappointment. Yeah. 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 And that's where we see, like you read the books of Haggai and Zechariah 
God's people need the prophet to encourage them through this to keep going. Mm. Um, you know, it's not like, hey, toughen it up. You know, it, it's God's spirit is going to help them through it with the work of the prophets kind of their hearts. Um, so we'll move on to uh, this third um, kind of sermon block, which is Ezra chapter four. Um, this is a con super confusing chapter. And that's why in this outline, I have broken it up into um, two parts with dates next to it. Uh, here, there's just this overwhelming sense of they're facing oppression. So they've come back zealous to rebuild God's house. They're saying, okay, here's the priorities for rebuilding God's house. But now, boom, all of a sudden they face opposition. Okay. And what's striking to me is the book of Ezra could have just stuck with what we have in chapter four, verses one to five. It, it talks about how those who'd been living in the land um, while Judah and Israel were in exile. Remember, Assyria had resettled people back in Israel when they took the Israelites out. And they're saying, hey, let, let us join in with you on this and so forth. But the Israelites knew you guys. Y'all aren't worshipers of, of Yahweh like you. Y'all aren't going to be part of this. And they are really resisting what's happening. In fact, resisting so much so that we're told um, that this lasted in verse 5 until the reign of King um, Darius of Persia. So that's all the way up until about 520 B.C. So, But then all of a sudden you just get the statement in verse 6, at the beginning of the reign of Ahasuerus, and if you don't know when that is, you might think, oh, well, that, that must be right near then. No, this is like 55 years later. This is, you know, a generation or so later. And it tells this lengthy story about opposition that the people face when they're trying to rebuild the city. Okay, so it's kind of fast forwarding to the time of... Um, uh, like when Ezra had come back and then Nehemiah was, was in the mix. So it's probably even after 465. Um, so so what, what the writer is doing here is saying, okay, my concern isn't so much to have a strict chronology because he's going to come back at the, end, at the very start of chapter 5 to the time of King Darius. But he's saying, well, let me just show you this. This is a pattern of my people, God's people facing opposition when they're doing the things he's called them to do. They faced it when they're rebuilding the temple. And look here, it's a parallel thing. He's, they're facing it again when they're rebuilding uh, the city. Okay. So, um, so I think that here you just, uh, and I, I've been struck recently, I've been reading through Acts in my devotions, Acts is a lot like Ezra yes. in many respects where, where you just see the church being built, but it's done in the face of opposition after opposition after opposition. But yet, like, the, you know, it, it, God continues to build his, his church. Um, and so I don't know if you can get a whole sermon out of simply saying <laughs> opposition will come. Or if you want to loop into 
the, this fourth sermon block where you actually get some positivity about how how we see God enable them to overcome this opposition to kind of complete their priority on God's temple. Um, but can, maybe I'll pause. Hoping that you can. Ken's <laughs> doing that block, I think. So I think. Oh uh, yeah, it is me. Yeah. You might want a little bit of hope in there. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Um. So maybe I'll move on to part four then, then, then take some questions on this part three and four um, of these sermon blocks. Um, we see then at the end of chapter four and into five, we're told that, but when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and Abodu prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who were over them, then we see Zerubbabel, the, these leaders in uh Jeshua, the, the priest, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. Now, if I flip ahead to how chapter 6 ends, and I kind of view chapters um, 5 and 6 together, uh, we, towards the end of that, in chapter 6, verse 14, it says, So the Jewish elders continued successfully with the, the building under the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Edo. So you see kind of this, they restart building the temple, then when they finish it, the prophets are kind of mentioned here, playing an important role where God is using these prophets to kind of help them in the midst of their facing of opposition. So um, again, I there's a lot of ways to think about what is prophecy, how does God use it, but I think we see the outcome here is really empowering, building up God's people to keep going on with what God is prioritizing, um, even when they're facing opposition. We also see a, a major focus here on they're able to overcome opposition simply because God is sovereign over these rulers. God has, does a work where hey, these people want to oppose this building process, but guess what? Darius comes back to the people who've written a letter saying, you can't let them do this. Says, you know, actually Cyrus said they could. And I want you to now start donating your goods to the project. Um, I mean, this is a remarkable vision of God's sovereignty and which you see from the beginning of Ezra all the way through the books of Nehemiah. God is just at work in these rulers to enable God to carry out what they're doing. And, and uh, there's a sense of wanting to give confidence um, in that as people are facing opposition. And then finally, I'll note that this rebuilding of the temple process has finally completed. And what do they do? It all ends in worship. They gather and they worship uh, the Lord again. So, that, so they worshiped when they're halfway through it. They're worshiping again. This is a people who want to prioritize God's presence in their midst. And that's what this uh, really um, is all about in this first six chapters. So um, questions, comments on third and fourth, these third and fourth blocks? I, lo I love the parallel between, you know, what's happening in the start when, when God's stirring Cyrus and now what, God does when um, when they come back and and uh, try to get Darius to turn against it. You know that's yeah. I think that's a that's great. That's a really 
that's that's a really powerful demonstration, I guess, of you know how God can um, move principalities and powers to to achieve His purposes, rather than rather than just you know the, we often have this passive, you know, God can God can take what's bad and turn it into good, as if God's passively receiving whatever actions you know um, the world throws at Him yeah. and just making good out of it, but yeah. This paints a very different picture of a of an active God who's actively moving, initiating yeah. um, the works of those and, and the thoughts and the visions and the dreams of those people for His own purpose. Um, yeah, and that that paints a much, much more accurate picture of of you know what God's actually doing. Um, yeah, yeah. Check out the end of verse. Or chapter six, it says they observed the festival of unleavened bread for seven days with joy because the Lord had made them joyful, having changed the Assyrian king's attitude toward them so that he supported them in the work on the house of the God of Israel. Mm. They can use the phrase Assyrian king to refer to Babylonian or Persian kings. You know, and they're, they're just so struck by, we got the Persian, God did something to change this Persian king's attitude to help us rebuild this thing. Let's celebrate. Mm-hmm. Our God. Yeah. Just a small, just some historical context again. Um, yep. If it's okay. Like when it says they completed and they dedicated the temple, like towards the end of chapter six, just sort of fast forwarding again. This temple gets smashed as well, doesn't it? Like, I'm assuming maybe when the Romans come through or something, because the temple talks about in the New Testament is sort of, I think Herod or something built that temple, didn't it? Like, yeah, Herod. Great temple Herod, for a period that gets smashed again later on, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Herod, Herod kind of rebuilds this temple. And then ultimately Herod's temple gets crumbles in, in 70 AD when, when the Romans come through. Um so back to Cameron's question, this is the moment where I would expect God's glory cloud presence to show up, right? Mm-hmm. The temple's built, you know, they're worshiping the Lord, they're dedicating it, but the glory of the Lord doesn't appear, right? Like, like they'd expect, but that's kind of where I think we, we get help from the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, where, where they start helping the people say, you know what, this actually isn't the end game for God's temple. This is kind of a a sign of God's faithfulness along the way, but there is going to be a greater temple of greater glory um, coming ahead. And um, so, yeah, so, so this is where some disappointment could be setting in or sober realization um, among the people that, that they needed to hear that from the prophets. So, And is that one of the wider like themes of that kind of it not being what the prophets had foretold? Like it's not that yet in the sense of, because I think I, I think that was from the Bible project, how they were saying that it's kind of like the temple didn't have God's glory and it wasn't all nations like God had promised. And, and there were these the markers throughout that it just didn't quite get to where the, there's you know, no Davidic know. king in place. That's right. Yeah. yeah. They're still under Persian rule. It, it's a very much a sense of already and not yet. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let me move on to part two and we'll be able to move through that more quickly. And then I do have some thoughts on how to 
preach this as like in light of the gospel, um, which, um, which may prove useful, but in part two um, of kind of the book of Ezra, like I mentioned before, um, let me change this to Ezra seven to 10. Um, part two is now introducing Ezra onto the scene, the person Ezra. And we've kind of fast forwarded now from say around 520-ish BC, um, about 60 years later to um, the time of Ezra. And the focus at first was kind of rebuilding the community around God's presence. Now it's kind of this rebuilding continuing through um, God's law. And kind of the first part of this you see in chapters seven and eight, and I think this aligns with your divisions, seven and eight, nine to 10 for, for the, the, the um, final part of this book, um, is first you have kind of returning the law amongst God's people. You don't really see Ezra back in Jerusalem for these two chapters. It's really about him getting there. And I'm struck as I read back through this today, just about how much time it spends kind of just describing who Ezra is, um, what, helping us see um, kind of his character being listed as being kind of from a priestly line. He's skilled in verse six in the law of Moses. Um, we're told that God's hand uh, was on him. And so the king here is granting everything he requests. Um, we're told again in verse nine that the gracious hand of God was on him. And then we're told in verse 10, which is just such a great verse, a description of Ezra. Now he determined his heart. Um, so like, in Hebrew, it's like he fixed his heart. He established, this is someone who's established his heart to do three things. It's to study it, to kind of seek it out, really trying to understand what it is. Second, he has a um, aim of also obeying it and doing it. Some people go to Bible college, say, I want to learn God's word so I can teach it. Ezra was saying, I want to learn God's word so I can do it. <laughs> I, I want to learn it so that I can live, live faithfully. And then the third part is, and he also wants to teach it, ideally to teach it so that they know it and also can live it like him. So this is someone who's being presented to us as um, the return of God's law amongst his people comes through a very equipped leader. And what I mean by an equipped leader isn't simply somebody who has a degree that this is somebody whose life has um, been shaped in a way that he's equipped for this task of bringing God's law back amongst them. We also see how God sovereignly works again in a ruler's heart to enable a return um, of Ezra. Um, and what's striking here is, again, this return focuses on the temple of God. This, this ruler is sending all sorts of gifts for people to worship God with. But what this goes beyond um, in terms of the first half of the book to hear is, we're told in verse 25, the, the letter from um, 
Artaxerxes is, and you, Ezra, according to God's wisdom that you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to judge all the people in the region west of the Euphrates who know the laws of your God and to teach anyone who does not know them. So, so this pagan king has a, gained a vision somehow through knowing Ezra and his wisdom and saying, I want you to go back and actually start teaching your laws and establishing people in place to help the people of the land to obey the laws of your God. Um, so again, this theme of God's sovereignty in the working through a leader to promote his purpose of having the law among them. We also see going on in the chapter eight, how God enables these people to return through his protection and his strength. I mean, Imagine traveling back with all these goods. This is a long journey. They're worried about getting, you know, laid waste by some uh, invaders, right? Um, and here we just see this story of Ezra saying, well, I don't want to ask the king to kind of send an armed guard with us because what would that say about my God? Yeah. Um, and so it says, so they fasted and prayed, looking to God for help, and he actually protected them. And once they finally get to Jerusalem, they worship the Lord. So, um, so I kind of see uh, part one here is kind of how God's enabling a return of the law to God's people. And, and then this part two, chapters nine to 10, we see kind of God's law at work purifying his people through his law. Um, chapter 9 has a wonderful confession that Ezra leads as he hears about the sin of his people. And then chapter 10 shows actions that build on that, that they're not simply saying, oh, Lord, forgive us for marrying um, all these foreign wives, for going back to the very things that got us in trouble and made us go into exile in the first place. No, actually, they took a really gut-wrenching action of deciding to divorce these wives and send them away along with the children they had uh, with them. Um, whoever's preaching on these chapters has a, has a pastoral challenge in front of them. This is one of the most um, uh, confronting um, chapters we have because uh, it raises questions of would God really want these women to be sent out of the protective care of being part of these families? Would, would God really want these children just because they're foreigners? Um, but a point I would really want to make clear here is that throughout the Old Testament, there's nothing wrong with foreignness and being married to a foreigner. We see that with Ruth, right? She marries Boaz. You see this with Rahab even. But the problem with marrying someone foreign relates to if, they're, if they are worshipers of other gods. Um, and if they're worshipers of other gods and they're marrying them, it's like with Solomon, how his heart goes astray. And this is not something to, that was to be part of this community that was trying to start back on the right foot. So I, I would emphasize it's not foreignness that's the issue as much as it is 
that foreigners tend to be those who worship other gods. The other thing I'll say is what's striking to me is that we, we hear about a few people who oppose this decision in this chapter. There, there are some people who weren't on board with it. You know, th this was a hard decision by the community that this was the way they needed to go. Um, and this, in less than ideal circumstances, it, it's a hard um, decision. We're not told about things like, well, what about provisions? Were provisions given to these women? Or what about if these women had actually become believers in the process? Could they stay? You know, we're, we're not told about those things because what the focus here is, is um, less on our pastoral questions and more so on the questions or the focus on this community being drawn to repentance towards turning away from that which is foreign um, uh, in terms of that could lead them to worship foreign gods um, so that they can be a, a pure community. So uh, I'll pause now for um, uh, questions, thoughts, comments on this chapter 7 to 10, which is now focused on the rebuilding um, through God's law. I just wanted to check my um, chronology a little bit. Um, I'm not meaning to kind of ignore what you said on chapter 9, 10, because I agree that's really hard stuff to kind of wrestle through as well. But just taking yep. a step back yeah, to no chapter problem. 7, um, I wasn't quite sure on a quick read, like Nehemiah, it's really clear, like he had a burden to go build the walls and um, he was cupbearer for yeah. the king and he had to seek out permission and then he got permission and he went. And here, like in chapter yep. seven, it's kind of says, um, you know, Ezra went to Jerusalem, but then sort of verse 11, it says, this is a copy of the king that was given to Ezra the priest commissioning him or compelling him or however you kind of read that to, to do this stuff or have this purpose. Yeah. And I kind of wasn't sure, like, was Ezra a man that was sent by Artaxerxes or did he already, he go and he kind of got this letter of confirmation that, yeah, this is a, this is a, you've got a role here in, in Jerusalem. I wasn't quite sure of the chronology, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, that, that's a great question. You know what? Sometimes we'll have summary statements like we have. I, the way I read um, chapter 7, verse 8, where it says he came to Jerusalem, it's kind of a summary statement that then the next few chapters kind of unpack how he got there, right? So, um, and so I, I think that... Um, that, that these are kind of summary statements that then say chapter 7, 11 through then to chapter 8 kind of unpacks. So I, I at least, again, you guys are going to be studying this a lot more closely than I've, I've had to because you're actually going to be preaching from it. Um, but my understanding has been that it's not like Ezra went to Jerusalem, then came back, got this letter, and then goes back again. I, I get the sense that he is being sent by Artaxerxes. We're, we're not really even told how he knew Artaxerxes. <laughs> um, whereas Nehemiah, you know, he's a cupbearer for the king. 
he's made this request. We mainly see him being commissioned by the king with this task, and he's given a letter because obviously he's going to face opposition if he's trying to <laughs> trying to do things. He's now this is his insurance policy, and that it is warrant, if you will, that will allow him to carry out these works he wants to do now that the, the king wants him to do now that he goes back. So. Um, however we interpret it, the right Ezra here wants us to view this as an act of the gracious hand of God that made the king show him favor by sending him back. So what I, what I infer from that is somehow Ezra has made a request and wants this to happen, and Artaxerxes is on board and thinks it's a good plan. Um, but we're not given all those details. It's it just me reading into, you, you see a number of statements like in chapter eight, verse 22, um, you see in chapter uh, seven, verse 28, the sort of uh, chapter seven, verse nine, this gracious hand of God, I think that's given him favor in the king's eyes, that's allowing him to do this. Um, do what he's essentially made for. I mean, he's been made to be this returnee who's going to reform the people around God's law. Uh, just a comment. I, I was struck um, in uh, chapter 9 and 10 about Ezra's um, mourning and grief over their sin and just seems to labor that point a fair bit um, a few times about how he wasn't eating or drinking. He he wept all night. He he, and it's just like such a challenge. Even as as leaders, is, you know, is this our response to mourning over one our own sin, but then also over the congregation and and those who were hoping to see um, grow in their relationship with God? I think that's a pretty big challenge to our response to sin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's a great point. That's a great point. You know, and it, what's fascinating, it's not simply a response to Ezra's own individual sin. It's kind of a corporate, mm. communal um, sin that, that um, yeah, that he's seeing himself as part of. Mm. Yeah, it's a great, great point, Cameron. Um, Andy, I'm, I'm interested in what you think, like, Unlike other parts of um, the Old Testament where it just sort of kind of says, you know, the nation sinned and it, and obviously it wasn't every single person who sinned here. Um, but I, unlike other parts of the Old Testament, it, it goes into a bit of a name and shame um, t towards <laughs> the end of chapter 10. And, and, you know, I find that really interesting. Like, like in individual cases in other parts of the Bible, you, you kind of get, you know, so-and-so did this and this was the bad result. In other times, you get these global statements, you know, the nation did evil in the sight of the, of the Lord. Yeah. Um, but here you get this middle ground of saying lots of people did it, but here, here, this is who they were. Um, do yeah. you, like, what do you think is the significance of that? Um, to you know to go yeah. to the trouble of recording that yeah yeah we imagine at your church okay here are the, <laughs> the folks that uh that have been kicked out because they weren't uh um yeah 
Um, so here are a couple, just one comment. I mean, I, I, this would be interesting as you go through to see what commentators say about why, about this point, I, I haven't looked into it, but, but what I notice here at the start of verse um, 18, um, the following were found to have married foreign women from the uh, descendants of the priests. So mm. um, this list seems to be focused on naming those in temple leadership who've kind of maybe not been uh, faithful. And, you know, that could be significant for uh, people and their leaders, you know, of um, thinking through, um, you know, the pure temple leadership who, who, who will be, be leading from here, from there on out. So again, I, that's my only observation. It's not really an answer as much as a, an observation that, that it could be focused on, on them. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I saw a similar thing in Lamentations where, where, when when lamentations turns its attention to how did we get here one of the re, one of the things that it talks about is the acts of the leaders and the priests who become corrupt yeah. and evildoers yeah. instead of and and it and it lays a yeah. fair portion of responsibility right at their feet um and, yeah. and as and you mentioned at the start of this that you know Ezra has this real kind of temple worship focus this this, this yeah. revolving around the the priesthood and those who are responsible for um, or whose role it is to help people connect and to worship the one true God. So yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's where yeah. it's coming from that it's, yeah. I hadn't, yeah, I must say I hadn't, caught, hadn't caught that, that, um, yeah. that note that it was focused on mainly on the priests and not others yeah. that, that might lead. What, yeah. And what struck me is, as I read through this for, for tonight today, that, you know, I kind of knew there's this kind of temple law kind of shift in the book, but what struck me was how much the temple is still very much a part of seven to 10. Um, a lot of what the King commands Ezra to do relates to worship at the temple. And, and it struck me that, well, of course the temple would remain in view. The law is very much wrapped up in the temple, you know, mm. how the people should be worshiping God and approaching him in the temple, how the leaders should be guiding the community and, and yeah. so forth. And, um, you know, so I, I think you're right, you know, that this temple view is lingering and, and seems to be remain important even to the end. Yeah. Well, let me give a couple comments um, about uh, how to, think about moving from what we see in Ezra to uh, today, especially we live in a new era of redemptive history where, where um, we see some discontinuity that um, in these books that can make it sometimes hard for us as the church to relate. And so in terms of discontinuity, we see we are not a geopolitical nation of Israel as a church. America is not a geopolitical nation like Israel. Australia is not a geopolitical nation like Israel. Now, now we could have a whole discussion on what it means to be nations today, right? Hmm. Yeah. Oh, 
you know, under that. Great, we see that, but specifically Israel is this Open a phrase. But by extension, God, Israel was the people of Sorry, Andy, you're just sort of dropping in and out. Am I good? Can you guys hear me? Uh, oh, you're back. There we go. Hey, is you guys good? Yeah. Yes, we're good now. Okay. I'm, I think I'm going to probably have to share the screen again. So let me so, um, go ahead and do that. Okay. You're right at the key point. Usually most of our sermons are like that, you know, towards the end. I know. It always happens, right? <laughs> so, um, so we're not – so Israel is this geopolitical nation, right, that's chosen by God. We aren't that. But like Israel, we are the people of God. And as the people of, so I think you can kind of focus as you're reading through here, what's at the core here of what it means to be God's people that, that we're learning about here in this passage? And how does that extend? Even though we're not a geopolitical nation, how does that extend um, to us? We also aren't those who are building physical temple on Sinai, you know, in, in Jerusalem. Um, but we see in Christ, who, who was the temple himself, but now for us, um, we can think about prioritizing the temple, namely where God's presence dwells. We're, we're told that God's presence dwells in the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're told that our individual hearts are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we look ahead to a time where God's temple will be fully realized as we see at the end of, of Revelation. So, so I think as you're thinking about the temple, you can kind of move in those directions in a way. I think that there's some strong foundation for doing that within the wider biblical theology. Um, we also see a sense of the law being in a bit different um, in this time where the law is primarily external. Yes, they are called to circumcise their hearts, but I don't want to minimize what the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel were hoping for, which namely is that the law would be written on the hearts of God's people. Uh, we live in a new era of the Holy Spirit. So while the law um, remains important, uh, we now need to be uh, alert to um, the law of God um, being um, written into the fabric of our hearts. So, um, so in this, uh, I'll bring out five points of overlap as I think through kind of the flow of Ezra um, between Jesus himself and the, this church age. I think we see Jesus prioritizing God's house. And I think when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about Jesus himself and saying, well, how do we see Jesus reflected here? Doesn't, does not Jesus embody this prioritization on God's house? It, Jesus quotes it on his own lips, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus cares for God's house, namely a place where people will be able to meet with and be in the presence of and, and worship God. So I think we're, we see Jesus as that priority and even as the house of God himself. 
the second overlap I think we see is like Jesus, um, these people were facing resistance. Um, you know, in a sense, they're resisting God in Ezra. That's what they're resisting. And Jesus is God. And we see God continue to be resisted when the Son of God takes flesh and lives his life as Jesus. So we're invited here to see us as a community who's joining in, experiencing resistance, just as Jesus and his disciples were uh, called to. Um, we also see means that God will use um, to help the church endure amidst um, uh, um, amidst this uh, oppression. We see God, uh, the good news that God has given spiritual gifts to his people. He's raised up prophets. He's raised up preachers. He's raised up people to build up the church. He's raised up people to give that cold drink of water uh, to those who are experiencing oppression. We see, um, uh, again, uh, these means. We see also Jesus prioritizing God's word. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, not, not a dot from this law will, will pass away. Hey, whoever is wise will build his house upon the rock. What is the rock? It's built listening to Jesus' word. Um, we see the apostles continue in this. So I think we... we and, and finally, we see a theme of persisting disobedience. It's not like the people came back and got their acts together right away. They needed reform. They were sinning at the end of the book. And that's how the book ends, with them having sinned, made a decision. And we don't know what's next. But when we read in Nehemiah, they make a bunch of pledges that they're going to change <laughs> what they're doing, but then in the final chapter, they've all reverted back to what they said they were going to change, right? Mm -hmm. And so this disobedience isn't simply teaching us, well, here's what we need to do. We need to get serious and get rid of our idols in our lives, which we do. <laughs> but we need that good news that, hey, we're actually part of this larger story, which points to a need for Jesus to atone um, for our sins through his death and write his law on our hearts. So um, there's probably a lot more you can do gospel-wise as you're working through, but this may give you some helpful lenses for thinking about drawing um, Ezra out within a context of this age in the church um, in light of Christ. So, um, and that's all I had to share. So, so let's finish with some, any questions, comments um, along these lines. That's really helpful, Andy. Yeah, I just want to say thanks. So this has been super useful um, just to help kind of orient my mind on some of those bigger um, bigger context questions and also, um, you know, one of, one of the things I always struggle with is because when you, you pick up a book of the Bible, you, you kind of, you don't have the, um, or at least I, I'm, not, I'm not really skilled at having the overlay of all the other little parts of scripture that are happening at the same time or just before or just after. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, this has been really helpful to, you know, get a little insight into some of the things that you, you've gleaned, like you've been able to glean from your years of study, Andy, and that's, it's generous yeah. of you. I really appreciate it. 
glad to glad to help Andy. Um, one one question I've got um, is is maybe about um, you know the return the return to Jerusalem was kind of all around focused around the the temple and observing the law and um, and then there's real the real focus on sort of getting back into the ritual of um, of observing um, that part of meeting with God. Um, and yet, um, it's clear enough in the Old Testament that um, that it was never the ritual that God really prized. Um, that was never, never the point of it. He wasn't he wasn't pleased with going through the motions. And and when they did that, when they went through the motions, but their hearts weren't in it, um, that that was you know that was detestable. Um, is there? Like, where do you see it in the in Ezra where that issue sort of comes out the most? Um, because yes, they're coming back. Yes, they're wanting to rebuild the physical temple. Um, but where where does that kind of? But it was always about the heart of it. Where does that message sort of come through strongest in these? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question because. It's hard, right, when you're talking about what a community is doing as they've come back. Mm. You know, it'd be nice to know where were their hearts really at when they sang that song, say, at the end of chapter uh, three, and they said they're giving, they're praising the Lord with thanksgiving for he's good, his love endures forever. Okay, is this just a refrain they know and they're just regurgitating because it's part of the temple worship have they just celebrated the festival of of booths you know i i tend to want to give these folks the benefit of the doubt here (laughs) coming out of all the suffering and pain it tends to be um you know i I tend to see a, a great genuineness of they've chosen to come back leave a settled life i mean life was pretty good for them where they had resettled that's why a lot of people chose not to go back and mm-hmm. here they've been willing to come back they're not perfect but here they're they really want to focus on on god's presence um so i would just say one of the things i would i would note though is um Even with, with Christ, he, he gives a ritual to his people, which is the Lord's Supper. Mm. You know, he, 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 there's an expectation that the word of God will be part of the liturgy of a worship service. Mm. Right? There, there's a sense where there are kind of formal elements um, that aren't to be Jesus even gives a script for a prayer in the Lord's prayer. Mm. And I think that that your point is more one of a caution, I think, um, than, uh, than it necessarily is a automatic, um, reflection that their hearts aren't with the Lord here. Right. Um, so 
the other thing I'll note is I'm struck by Nehemiah. And again, I think Ezra and Nehemiah are close together. And Nehemiah 1 or chapter 2, I can't remember which one, it talks about how much he prays. And in fact, at one point, he says when he when the king asked him what was wrong, it says, I prayed to the Lord and then I said, well, obviously, he didn't step out. He's praying silently in his heart. You know, we're like, yeah, woohoo, we can pray silently. You know, God does here. Nehemiah did it. Yeah. Um, you know, but but you see uh, looks of just these glimpses of some of these folks have this genuine relationship with God. I think Ezra's in that same boat. He's just talking about God's gracious hand on him. And he's leading them in these prayers. He So anyways, I, I, I think that... Um, I'm talking around your question because it's a hard one, but but you see a lot of that attack on ritual coming up among the pre-exilic prophets, um, you know, and Isaiah and Amos, Micah, um, and uh, those those are things that people will struggle with continually, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't think it meant that um, there wasn't going to be any of the ritual anymore. So he, he mainly there doesn't want them to think, hey, you do the ritual, but then you live lives of injustice. He wants whole lives committed to him, lives of justice, as well as lives that are living um, in worship towards him, even through ritual. So, so it, it, maybe it more, um, it, maybe it helps you to keep the pendulum from swinging too far, you know, because you, you're right, if you, if you look at those, um, those pre-exilic statements, you kind of you kind of end up in a space. Well, you know, the ritual doesn't matter. It's, the observations don't matter. I can I don't need to join a church. I can just be me and Jesus, you know. And yeah. you can end up in that space, which is not accurate nor healthy. Um, and this maybe helps you to swing back from that and say it's not. But it's the things are useful, but they're not in themselves what it's about. It's about yeah. your heart and God and and you know. Yeah, people back. He doesn't just say, "Let's come back. Let's get back together, and uh, yeah. let's just restore our relationship." He's, no, I want us to restore these observations as well. These, these. This are- is a way, yeah, a way for them to do it as a community. Mm. Um, and God had given them this holy calendar, which involved these festivals they were to keep, and it's a way of keeping them oriented. I mean, they didn't have Bibles in their own homes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they didn't have the printing press. (laughs) Um, They needed to be gathering and having these songs and rituals that help them. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's useful. Just, um, sorry, just one final thing. Um, Just so, because we're in Lamentations at the moment, which I think Shubs has told you there. I just want to make sure I've got the bridge. Um, between Lamentations and Ezra, right? So, like, obviously Babylon was the empire that, that came through and wiped out Jerusalem initially and then hauled them into exile. And then it sounds like the Persians basically just came over the top and took over from Babylon. And so when you hit Ezra, although they went into exile with the Babylon's by the time you get to Ezra, they're still in exile just with different rulers because the Persians had taken over and then they're getting sent back from the Persians. Is that? Yeah, that's right. So as Persia took over, it was actually Babylonia weakened, Babylon weakened significantly. 
and as Persia grew, they, they took Babylon without a huge fight, you know, and eventually they just conquer the whole known world. And um, Persia was different. Like Assyria had this policy of we're going to rip you out of your land and put you in a new land. Um, and we're going to resettle people back in your land. So you'll never be able to go back there. Babylon was more like submit to us or we're going to kill you and take you into exile. They had no plan for like kind of restoring the land or anything. But um, so imagine like Persia comes along and they had a pretty peaceful policy. They're like, Hey, you know, if you want to go back to your lands and and rebuild, resettle there, you know, we can make that happen because they knew that could create as big of an empire as they had. They, they couldn't enforce kind of a monolithic culture across the whole thing. So they tried to find a way to let people have their own cultural identity um, while very much being <laughs> controlled and taxed by the Persians. So be like China and Hong Kong, you know, one nation, two systems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not working so well. <laughs> Well, blessings uh, to you all as you preach through um, Ezra, and I guess to you uh, small group leaders as you'll be leading discussion. Um, I really uh, applaud um, you turning uh, to this book, and I, I think it was, as Andy was observing, I I trust the Lord will have many kind of aha moments where it's like, Lord, you this is a word for us right now. We, we need to hear this. We, we need to think of who we are as a community around God's presence in a community that's being reformed by his word. Um, so may the Lord uh, strengthen you all as you encourage uh, uh, your brothers and sisters. Uh, and yeah, that's, yeah, thank you. Um,